Um, hey, you know, the church is where the people of God are. And today, this is church because you're here. Thank you for being here. It's great to see you. Um, good to be together. And mass, really, just a very enjoyable time. I hope you meet with God, that you're refreshed by him in some way. We got some good news this week. Um, you know, the bad news with regard to the Franz Road building that we've been trying to acquire is that it fell uh, out of zoning, um, unbeknownst to us, and we were bumping up against the end of our contract with the owner, uh, which meant the building was probably going to get away with us from us while we uh, pursued that zoning. Um, the, the owner has responded to our appeal just this week and said he'd give us 90 more days. We are thrilled about that. It's really exciting. Um, maybe we'll be able to get the zoning done in that time, but if we don't, we're going to be close enough uh, that I suspect he'll stay with us. That was a great, great sign. Super glad about that. We also got good news that Kaufman High School is available throughout the summer with one week exception, so we can meet in a normal, regular place in the Northwest when we're over there. So count on alternating back and forth and back and forth throughout the summer each week, with the exception of May 22nd. We don't have Kaufman then. Uh, with that one exception, we're just going to be alternating 10 o'clock every week. Um, it's going to be great. It's going to be a great summer. Thanks for being a part of it. Uh, we're, we're shifting into a new series, but not a new book. We're staying in Mark. Like I said, we'll be in Mark pretty much for the rest of our lives. But we can change the, the, the dressing on the outside. So we're going to call this next set of uh, sermons uh, Disenchanted. And I want to start, uh, obviously, by talking about the 1960s Dodge Coronet that my mom and dad drove when I was very young, four, five, six, seven years old. The reason I loved that car back then was because um, it was enchanted. There was an air vent on the passenger side that um, if I interacted with it properly and sent some of the right magic words, it would suddenly blast air in my face, which just, just enthralled me, dazzled me. I had no idea that there was uh, some kind of a mechanism inside there that you could shift and the air would come through and close and the air wouldn't come, nor did I know that it was connected to a cable that went around to a little handle next to my dad's knee. I loved that whole idea. And yes, I enjoyed it while I was sitting on the floor while we drove around town. <laughs> I don't even know if our cars had seatbelts. There were no bicycle helmets at all. They didn't even exist. We just hung out on the floor in the front seat of the car and were uh, dazzled and enthralled with things like air vents. That's, that, was our, that was our deal. We also had a talking pumpkin. My dad was an engineer, uh, a social kind of a guy, and every Halloween he uh, rigged up an amplifier that he built from scratch to a microphone and a speaker, that, and he hid wires up through the, the base and into the, the floor of a, of a pumpkin with a candle hiding the speaker, and people would gather around. I kid you not, whether you were three years old or 70 years old, we had hundreds and hundreds of people come and talk to the pumpkin every Halloween. People drove their cars miles to come and interact with the pumpkin. And you know what? They didn't care about wires. They weren't looking to expose it. They just were dazzled and enthralled and enchanted by an opportunity to talk to this pumpkin. Disney 
has had enchantment at the core of its entertainment strategy for almost a hundred years. Humanity is inclined to be, maybe even designed to be enchanted in good ways. Like I said, in the warmest possible definition of enchanted, to be captivated, to be dazzled, to be enthralled. Disenchantment is one of the byproducts of scientific discovery, rational explanations of the natural world. The enlightened postmodern mind is less mystified, less enchanted. It, when, we, when, we, when we understand that a rainbow is as a result of light being refracted through raindrops or mist like a prism, we are less impressed. It might, it might be just as beautiful, but we're less dazzled by it. And we run the risk of looking foolish when we're enthralled. And in this enlightened era that we live in. No one wants to look like a fool. No one wants to be proven wrong in five years or 10 years or 15 years. So we're very slow to be enchanted anymore. Although we're built for it. I'm, I'm convinced we are built to be excitable and excited about things and to engage things that we don't even fully understand. But I fear enchantment might be a thing of the past. Or is it? Is it? No. If you think about the world we live in, there are, there are compelling forces in this world, some of them invisible. They're at work in our society. And I believe they take advantage of the human design to be captivated and spellbound and transported from reality by our imaginations. I think we're enchanted by sensational news reporting and fear-based advertising and fantasy role play and online communities of unverified identities and algorithms that reinforce your biases. I think we are enchanted, maybe in negative ways. We're enchanted by the superficialities and the exaggerations and the deceptions that can infect social media. Humanity has always been enchanted by fame and fortune. Where, where these sorts of things become harmful or, or darkened bedazzlements, we need to be disenchanted this is what we're going to look at as we transition to a, a, the next phase of the book of Mark, to explore and continue to study how to rightly embrace the mysteries of God, to embrace the truths of God that, that go beyond explanation, to be enthralled with him, to be delighted by him, to be captivated and enchanted by God and the things of God. Yet, at the same time, to discover and to learn and to be motivated, to be disenchanted with the world, 
disabused of dark and harmful enchantments, those manipulative deceptions that infect the people and the systems that tend, tend to steal us away from reality and sobriety and meaning. That's what we want to do. We want to be enchanted with the right things and disenchanted of the wrong things. I would suggest that at the core of unhealthy enchantments is the difficulty we have seeing. We have a hard, we have a hard time seeing. We think we see, but oftentimes we don't. We had an instructor pilot uh, when I was going through flight school uh, whose nickname was Turbo Ted. Everything was very intense about this major. His shoes were shiniest, his walk was sharpest, his moves were fastest, his thinking was creative. He was, he was on all the time, Turbo Ted. My roommate was, um, had him as an instructor pilot. There was a particular landmark that, that, that helped uh, everybody engage the traffic pattern at the right spot. It was actually a Perkins flag. I don't know if you know Perkins, but their flags can be, all, I think, almost seen from the moon. They're huge. And that's why it was a landmark for us. But my roommate, Jorgi, couldn't see it day after day after day. He could not find that landmark. And one day, Turbo Ted rolled the airplane over, directed the nose at the flag and said, today, Jorgensen, you're going to see the flag or we're going to impact it. It's hard, it's hard to see sometimes what everybody else can see. Early on in, in our marriage, um, and about a thousand times since then, I, I, couldn't, I can't find what I'm looking for. And this particular day that I'm remembering, I was going to make a peanut butter sandwich. And I told Tammy I was going to make a peanut butter sandwich. And I opened the pantry and knew that I was going to find, in a matter of seconds, the red-capped Jif peanut butter jar. Tammy was aware of the minutes that had gone by that I was standing in front of the pantry and said, blue cap. She bought a different kind of peanut butter. It had a blue cap. And as soon as she said blue cap, it appeared to me right in front of my face. I missed it completely. I was looking for a red cap. Sometimes the stuff is right there, and for whatever reason, we just can't see it. One of the reasons teen addictions go to the point of destruction before the parents can see that it's even happening is because as parents, we don't want to see it. There's a lot of things like that in life that we don't want to see. Blindness is a timeless human problem, but without good sight, we can miss what's right in front of us. Physically, as well as psychologically, sometimes we just can't see right. Sometimes we see, but we don't understand what we see. I found a quote by a, a, a Russian author from the 1800s who was just burdened for the lower class 
that was not only being overpowered and oppressed, they didn't know that they were being overpowered and oppressed. They thought that their life was normal. And Alexander Herzen said, it is possible to lead astray an entire generation, to strike it blind, to drive it insane, to direct it toward a false goal. We are designed to be enchanted. In some cases, we are easily enchanted to the wrong things. And the reason we don't know it is because we don't see very well. It's no different now than it's ever been. That's why, in part, when Jesus arrived on the scene, he was described, prophesied to be, and described, and self-described as the light of the world. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus is the one who allows those who would entrust themselves to him to see, to be enthralled by the right things and disenchanted with the wrong. Not only did Jesus enlighten us to what we needed to see in this world, but he also enlightened us to who God is. He helped us see uh, what's physically and psychologically needed to be seen, but he also allows us to see who God is. Paul put it this way. He said, let light shine out of darkness. This is for God said, let light shine out of darkness. It has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a light to our path and a light to the knowledge of God. Jesus helps us see. Helping people see was a constant part of his teachings. To address blindness. For, to, to, to lead people into the knowledge and the acceptance of what's true and real and to reject what is not. And he occasionally illustrated his teachings about light and sight by actual healing blind people. But he was often more not just setting up another teaching that those who have sight don't see. And he would say, this is what I do for humanity. I can help actual physically blind people see, but the greater problem is that people with sight can't see what they need to see. We don't tend to see our own ignorance, our own sin, our own motives, our corruption, bad character, in ourselves or others. Not an easy ministry. Not an easy ministry to help people see. Blindness is very stubborn. We can be deeply committed to seeing what we, to not seeing what we don't want to see. You understand what I'm saying? We are, we are deeply committed to not seeing what we don't want to see. Case in point, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, um, and it was obvious that they wanted Jesus to heal his blind eyes. So 
Obviously, Jesus spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. Jesus says, do you see anything? And he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. You know, blindness is a tough deal when it takes Jesus two shots. <laughs> right? Two times. Hey, what do you see? Trees. OK, come here. <laughs> hey, man, you. Let's try this again. We're reminded of our resistance to see and the agency that we have been given to even resist God in what he's trying to do. We have to be receptive to do it. We, we, we have to accept it, engage it. It's hard to see. And we can't expect to just be magically made to see. It's hard. Blindness is stubborn. And we need to be involved in the process. Jesus turns to his disciples, as he often did after he uh, demonstrated his power or a miraculous thing, and he checks their vision. They were walking around, and we've covered this in the recent past, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? But, and he says, and you in particular, who do you say that I am? What are you seeing that is true about me. What do you see? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. Just true. And he believed it. What Jesus knows that Peter doesn't know yet is that although he's correct generally, he has a distorted view of the Messiah. Peter, like you and I, once certain things to be true about Jesus that are not true, and we want to see it our way. Peter is seeing what he wants to see. He and the disciples, and you and I today, struggle to understand and accept the sort of Messiah that Jesus actually is. You can watch for this in any conversation of depth that you're having about Jesus or the scriptures, and you will hear this phrase more often than not. Well, what I think that means is, well, here's what I believe Jesus is about. Do you hear the subtle arrogance in those statements? That, that what I think is true is true? You know, most atheists claim to be atheists on intellectual grounds, but they're atheists on moral grounds. Very few atheists that I've ever talked to can explain why they are atheists. But the more you talk, the more you understand they don't want to live the way God directs life. So what do we do? Well, there is no God. Why? because I don't want to live that way. And if that's who God is, I don't want to see him. In fact, I will just put him out of existence in my own mind. I will believe there is no God so that I can live the way I want. That's some pretty serious blindness. 
It is not uncommon to know someone who, even Christians, this isn't even really possible, but that, re- that reject the resurrection of Christ, yet at a funeral will say, isn't it great? She's in a better place now. H- how? If there's no resurrection, there's no better place. But we want to believe that. No matter what our religious theologies are, when we lose someone, we want to have a reality that comforts us. So we see and believe what we want to see and believe. They're in a better place. I will see them again. These things are true. But the theology of that person would not embrace that. It's just a complete disconnect. What Peter will eventually say to Jesus is, look, if we're going to conquer enemy nations and extract ourselves from Roman oppression, we need you, Jesus, alive. And I will personally take responsibility for that objective. I will keep you alive so that we can have the world that I want. When Jesus heard Peter say, I'm going to stop you. I should say it this way. This is what Jesus heard when Peter says, I'm I'm going to protect you. This is what Jesus would have heard Peter say. I'm going to stop you from carrying out God's plan for your life, Jesus, to free all of humanity from their spiritual death penalty. (laughs) Right? If Jesus can't do what he was meant to do, then all of humanity is doomed. So this is what he heard Peter saying. I'm going to get in the way of God's plans for you to redeem all of humanity. Jesus turns to his disciples. He turns to them. Peter says, you're the Messiah. And then he starts to tell them what, that's, what that means. And he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers. Basically, everyone respected and esteemed in their culture. And that he must be, Jesus, that is, be killed. This is what Jesus is teaching them. And now Peter's misconceptions surfaces. His blindness, his commitment to his understanding shows up. And Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. This is the epitome of blindness. Jesus, um, we need to talk. You don't understand. You don't understand, Jesus. I'm going to help you. That's some serious blindness. Peter thinks Jesus is missing it. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. We say, God, why? How could you? How could you let this happen? How how could you possibly, how how could you and I possibly question Jesus, God's plan? This can't be right. You must not care. You must not be powerful. What? That's us going, God, come here. I don't think you understand what it looks like to be compassionate to the world. I don't think you understand when to initiate your power and when not to. Let me explain. We question God's awareness, his compassion on a regular basis. 
and we call it authenticity, it's actually blindness. And if, it, and if seeing means that my loved one is going, isn't going to get better, if seeing means admitting or accepting that my dreams aren't going to come true, then we choose not to seek God or to make him into something in our imagination that he's not. Jesus, hearing Peter, turns around and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's being used in this particular case in the most dark of ways to stop the Son of God from redeeming humanity. That's, a, that's as evil as the work gets. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is us. We struggle to have godly concerns. We are enthralled with our human concerns. We, we, we are engaged and bedazzled by the things of this world that make us feel certain ways and make other people feel certain ways about us. We are fully engaged with the concerns of this world. And that is our human tendency now and forever. Peter's told by Jesus that he's enchanted by the wrong things, captivated and compelled by what the world puts forth as what is important and how to solve problems. You and I and Peter and everyone else need to be disenchanted of the world and enchanted by who Jesus truly is, what he's truly about, what it actually means to follow him. This Son of God, who is the truth and the life and the way. Jesus continues and makes it very, very clear what is true about him to those that are listening. Calls them around and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is what we're going to lean into the next few weeks. If you want to be a part of God's great world restoration plan, of whom Jesus has been installed as president, CEO, and general contractor, there are a few things we're going to have to do to participate with God bringing about our sight. First, humble yourself before God. Let go of the delusion that you see right. That's a tough one. To say to God, maybe I don't see this right. Maybe I'm wrong. In ways, I am utterly convinced that I'm right. There is no other, no better place to start with God than that. I might be completely wrong. Humble yourself. Let go of the delusion that you're right. 
that your aspirations are good and choose instead to find God, to adapt to him, to his truth, his solutions, his strategies. He goes on, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Number two, distinguish yourself to the world. Get out of the rat races the world constructs to keep you captive. Be distinguished apart from the world. We have become pretty good at distinguish ourselves within and to the world, but we need to be distinguished from. A, a, a life, this is what Jesus is saying, essentially, a life that God considers worthy, the world considers foolish. Does the world think your choices, your priorities as a Christian are crazy town? They should. Some should judge you for it, even harshly. Tell you're wasting your time and your resources. You're not doing anything productive. A pastor was visiting an 85-year-old woman in his church. He hadn't seen her for a long time. She was housebound. She was going to die. She knew it. She asked him to come over. When he got there, she said, I'm worried about you. I don't know how you're going to get along without me. And his thought was, you don't ever come to church. I don't think you're serving in any way. Okay. And she said, yeah. I pray for you every day. Every day. That's work that gets no applause. It's time that maybe productive things could be done. Chairs could have been straightened. Walls could have been painted. A life of godly priorities isn't evaluated by the return on investment. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Do you ever invest time and tithe and talent that intentionally brings you nothing in return? No praise? No sense of accomplishment. You ever just do for God in such a way you get nothing out of it? Are you willing to do the best things for God, even though the world will call you a failure while you do it? I would argue that if we're not getting those kinds of criticisms, those kinds of judgments, distinguishing ourselves from the priorities uh, and the productivity of the world and being criticized for it, that we're not following Jesus because he says whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses life from me will, uh, will save it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We've got to humble ourselves before God. We've got to distinguish ourselves from the world And we got to work on our sight. We got to commit to knowing God, listening to Jesus, seeing the truth in all situations. 
I'm going to build this next concept out significantly over the next few weeks. But I am going to suggest that you and I, unlike any previous era, I, I am going this route. I'm going to suggest that this is a unique era, different than any previous era, because we have a unique obstacle to knowing God, to seeing clearly and embracing the truth, which is relatively new and shockingly powerful. Continuous distraction continuous distraction. There's a lot of ways that that's happening in the world around us. But because of that fact, we're different from other generations in that we aren't threatened, generally speaking, to be committed to some wrong truth. That's what happened in the past. The ladder was stacked against the wrong wall. This generation isn't threatened as generations past to believe in and be committed to the wrong truth, but to believe in and be committed to nothing at all. Because there is no time. We are completely distracted from digging in, understanding deeply anything. The threat of this generation and this era is to be utterly superficial. To spend next to no time, committed, uninterrupted, undistracted time to struggle to know the truth, to discover our creator. Our attention spans have been stolen intentionally taking away opportunity to do the hard work of exposing darkness and lies and the impact and effect on ourselves and those we love. We're going to dig into that in specific ways later. Jeremiah, Old Testament prophet, says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. This generation, this society, this culture that we live in, is threatened to do nothing with all of their heart, all of our heart. But if you do, I will be found by you. You will see me if you seek me with all of your heart, and I will bring you back from captivity. If you do the hard, seemingly unproductive work of seeking me, if your top priority and greatest allotment of time is to find me, if you muster the ability to accept the truth, I will give you sight. I will disenchant you of your darkened understandings and give you the sight you need to find true joy, real peace, and true significance and meaning. 
Humble yourself to God. Distinguish yourself from the world. Set your top priority to be working on your sight. And fourthly, lean in. Be like Laird Hamilton. This is Laird. Very few people know Laird. He was one of the greatest surfers to ever live. He was the first one to ride this wave, which happens off the coast of Tahiti when there's a storm way out at sea and it hits the coral reef, which is like a wall. Most waves of this size don't curl like that. They curl real small at the top. This one is especially built for, I guess, surfing. And Laird was one of the first people to do it. 25-foot wave. That coral reef that's a wall, from that wall in, the water's only like six feet deep. So you can't wreck. You can't wipe out. I don't know nothing about surfing, really, or snowboarding in a half pipe, or skateboarding, or biking in a half pipe, but I do know and understand this. You gotta commit. They call it dropping in for a reason. You don't jump in this way. You go horizontal. Same thing with surfing. Look at this close-up of Laird. He's dragging his right hand. Surfers drag their left hand on the back part of the wave. You know why he's dragging his right hand? Because riding a wave like that, you fall in. You, you got to keep yourself up. You notice he's also wearing like straps on his feet. There's a reason for that too. To get into a wave this big, not only do you have to lean in and sacrifice everything, you can't get there on your own. You can't paddle fast enough to catch the wave. So Laird figured out a way to catch the wave. You got to get pulled by a jet ski. That's how you get into the wave. The very first time they were trying to catch this wave and that guy was pulling Laird, when he got up to the top of the wave and it started to curl, he realized Laird was going to die doing this thing and he turned around to tell Laird not to do it and Laird had already let go. Laird just continues to, has always continued to revolutionize surfing. And he never was really in any competitions or anything like that. He was just leaning in to the next thing, putting it all on the line. And he didn't do it alone. Another unique thing about this wave out there in Tahiti is it just ends. Like it just stops. Most waves just got to continue on until they grow. But this one just stops. And you can, it stops at the same place every time. So you can just park a boat right there. Like that wave's not going to keep coming. So you can stand right there and they just cheer him on and help him do his thing. The reason I show you that is because one of the keys to finding God is to lean in in such a way that you are fully committed in ways that seem maybe ridiculous. You can't do it alone. You need a jet ski. You need to need people. The jet ski is the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Jesus said just before he departed the fix in Acts chapter 1. They gathered around him and asked him, 
Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to do what we hope? He said, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. I'm not telling you when that's going to happen. I need you to lean in to where you are right now and know him with no real expectation, no understanding of where this thing is going to end and when you're going to come out of captivity. That's not for you to know. That's not what I want you to see. It's not for you to know. But, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You will be the ones. What does a witness do? What does a witness do? It tells you what? What does he tell you? What does the witness tell you? What they saw. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be the ones who see. And you'll tell all of Judea, all of Samaria, and you will go to the ends of the earth. We tend to think the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us so that we can accomplish what we want to accomplish, so that we can have what we want to have. But the power of the Holy Spirit isn't for what we naturally think and what we naturally see. The power of the Holy Spirit primarily is so that you can believe. And so that you can lean in and so that you can see. It is not natural to live by faith. It is not natural to trust God, to give your life to Jesus with so many unanswered questions and so little rational proof. You can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given when we turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus for the first time or again. Receive and know the Spirit of God and allow the Spirit of God to let you drop in and live life by faith. The power of the Holy Spirit is the power to believe and the beginning of the ability to see. You cannot do it on your own. You need God. You need the grace of Jesus. You need the power of the Spirit. God always has great plans for his church. Things that he wants the church to do, I would argue things he wants the church to build, people he wants the church to reach, ministers, ministries he wants the church to develop. But it's all built on faith. It's all built on seeing the truth. It's built on a high High, the highest priority of finding him above everything else we do. God, as a church, we, 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 can, we can kind of begin to see when we listen to your teaching and we read the scriptures and, we, and we, when we hear the echo of eternity and the and the person of God in the spirit within us we can begin to see but oh god we are admittedly blind help us by your power god would you give us the strength to live by faith would you damage our ignorance 
dispel our darkness, humble us, invigorate us to be enchanted by you. Push us, God. Pull us. Whatever it takes, God. Give us the strength to spend undistracted time with you. Give us the courage to be distinctively yours. Give us humility we can't muster on our own. God, we want to be your church that above all else sees you, shows you to others. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.